know, one of the beautiful things about learning Spanish or learning another language as an adult is that you're always learning and your Spanish is your Spanish, you know? Like my Spanish mm -hmm. is a layer of Chilean with like a little bit of Mexican sprinkled in there and a little bit of some Argentine mm -hmm. and now some Spanish. Like it's always growing. Welcome back to Working. I'm your host, Nate Chenin. And I'm your other host, June Thomas. June, whose voice was that at the top of the show? Nate, that was Megan McDowell, a translator of literary fiction from Spanish. Her translation of Samantha Schweblin's Seven Empty Houses won the 2022 National Book Award for Translated Literature. But today's show actually has two guests. Megan is joined by Carlos Fonseca, one of the writers whose work she translates. Oh, so we get two for one this That's episode. Right. I love it. <laughs> And why did you want to talk with the two of them? Well, the English translation of Carlos's latest novel, Austral, was published in May, and I wanted to take this opportunity to talk with a writer and their translator to explore that relationship and learn how they work together. And I have a hunch that you also grabbed some bonus content for our Slate Plus members. What can they expect to hear? Oh, you know me so well. I asked Carlos why translation is important to him. Why does he want his books to appear in languages other than the one it was written in? I also asked about translating non-textual elements. Austral includes some, I guess you could call them artistic artifacts that include words and they too were translated. And it turns out that the story of how that came to be was really interesting. I am definitely intrigued. Uh, and if you are too, please consider being a Slate Plus member. If you are already a member, make sure to stick around for that conversation at the end of the show. Now, how do you become one if you're not? Well, you can sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. You'll get exclusive members only segments, bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood, and you'll never hit a paywall on the Slate site. Also, if you become a Slate Plus member, you'll be supporting our work and the work of everyone at Slate. To learn more, go to slate.com slash working plus. All right, let's hear June's conversation with Carlos Fonseca and Megan McDowell. Carlos Fonseca and Megan McDowell, welcome to Working. Thank you so much for having us. This is really exciting. Yeah, thanks so much, Jude. I'm so happy to be here. So Carlos is the author of three novels, most recently Austral, and Megan is a much garlanded translator, including of Carlos's three novels. I'm very excited to talk to you both because I've long been fascinated with the relationship between writers and translators, First, Megan, how long have you been working with Carlos and what were the origins of this working relationship? Well, it's a unique origin story. And I think we first got in contact, I would say, in 2012. And Carlos, he had finished a draft of his first novel, but it wasn't even published in Spanish. So he wrote me, I was living in Switzerland then, and he wrote me and asked if he could send me a copy. 
And I said, of course. And so he sent it to me, asked me if I would translate it. And I loved the book and said, sure, I'll, I'll do that. And, and this is the only time this has happened for me where the English translation existed before the book was even published in Spanish. Wow. And then a couple years later, well, a couple years, no, not even. It was published by Anagrama, the best Spanish language publisher. And I think maybe a year after that, it finally came out in English. But there was a long mm. time where it only existed in our computers. <laughs> wow. So, Carlos, why did you send this book that was only written and not yet published? Why did you send this to Megan? Yeah, it was funny. Like, um, I was trying to think about it now, and I think it was because um, my wife, Ati, she doesn't, like, uh, speak Spanish nor read Spanish. And, you know, I had to, like, explain to her why I had been spending so much time, like, you know, away from home and with the computers. So that's when I contacted Megan. I had read Megan's wonderful translation of an author that I really respect and admire, who is Alejandro Zambra. I think Ways of Coming Home had, like, just been released or was in the process Ways of, of going being released. Home. <laughs> yeah. So, so I loved it. And I said, like, you know, this is the person. And I was extremely lucky because, like, if I even tried that nowadays with the amount of, like, work <laughs> that Megan has, it would have been impossible. But, like, so it has been more than 10 years and three novels and, and it's wonderful, like, you know, to, to work with Aaron. I now always say that I have a little Megan McDowell in my, in my mind, even when I write <laughs> in Spanish, because, like, you know, it's an interesting process of self-editing that goes through it. And it's just great. So how do you two collaborate? We should note that you two do not live in the same country, continent or time zone. And when in the writing process do you start first talking about the translation? I think like usually like once I have finished the novel and the novel is like uh, printed and going, you know, or about to go into print. So that process either last edits or once it is published, I want her to be, of course, one of the first readers after my editor has read it. And then the first thing that I always tell Megan is, you know, I'm open to changes. And I always see the basically the, the translation process as like a, an open-ended possibility of like keep editing the book, right? I feel oh. like we, we send the books to, to print, but there's so many other things that we could change. And like opening again for translation is one of those opportunities. Wow. So, Megan, when Carlos has suggested that, that he, he would almost take your edits, can you think of a, a time when that has happened and, and what, what sort of kind of thing you suggested to him for the translation? Well, so I think that a lot of times as I'm reading and as I'm translating, the thing is when you're translating a book, you read it more closely than probably any other mm -hmm. reader does, even an editor. And because I'm, I have to build this sort of house of cards in my head. You know, I have to get everyone's timeline straight. I have to build a choreography of, you know, the movement of the characters and the layout of houses. You know, I always say that when I'm translating a book, I want to know in my head everything that the writer knew when they were writing it, which is impossible, but it means that I ask a lot of questions and a lot of times I, I, I want to have clear things that don't even appear in the text. You know, I want to know a lot of other stuff. So 
Carlos is really open to, you know, if, if something is not clear for me, he's always open to adding something in the text that does make that clear. You know, sometimes I get confused about a timeline. Like, Austral is a book that has a lot of, you know, different moments in history. It's told in almost a spiraling way. You know, it's like mm-hmm. if you think of a camera that pulls out and then goes in on a moment and then pulls out and then goes in on an, another moment. And I feel like for me, I want to have those timelines and those moments as clear in the close-up and also clear in terms of the timeline. So I think to answer your question, a lot of what I add is is sort of markers, markers in time, mm-hmm. markers in space, things that make things clearer to me. So sometimes it's it's kind of for your understanding as much as anything else. Some of the things might change the text, but some of the things are to help you be sure that you understand the text so that you can then transmit it in this other language. Right. And it's a it's a fine line to walk, you know, because as a translator, you know, I'm that that's my job is to make something, you know, comprehensible to someone who in in theory can't read it. Part of my job is also as a literary translator to maintain the ambiguity that's there in the original, you know. So I don't want to add, you know, too much explanation that's unnecessary. Mm-hmm. I do have this tendency to want to make things as clear as possible. So I feel like that's a kind of a constant conversation that we have. I don't know. What do you think, Carlos? I think that's a good explanation because I have the tendency to always make things as complex as possible. (laughs) I don't try to. It's not like somebody just comes out that way. So, for example, I have like very good memories of like right now of like working with you, Megan, on Natural History, the novel that came before. And and that was a very kind of like, you know, lengthy novels and like also with many different like time settings and, and historical episodes that resonate many years later. And Megan is just so good with her chronology, but also so good at spotting inconsistencies. So she's like, if the kid is like 10 years old here, how come like 20 years later, the mother is calling her a teenager and stuff like that? And I was like, oh God, like you're completely right. And then I'm trying to figure out, of course, if I change that, then are there like, is there any domino effect, right? So like it's... Mm. uh, it's uh, it's a lot of fun doing that sort of editing, but also kind of like always stressful how, you know, yes. the amount of like uh, little things that the detective is going to find. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Well, you know, Carlos, one of the things that I'm conscious of is that often when I talk to writers, especially fiction writers, when I kind of... I'm asking them about the book. And of course, you know, maybe they're doing publicity for the book. So they're, you know, they're in that moment with the work that we're talking about. But in many ways, they're ready to move on. They want to get to their next project. They want to like leave that world behind and move on to the next book. But in a way, what you're saying is you kind of stay with the book for maybe another year, maybe longer while you're working with Megan. Do you ever kind of resent that extra time that you spend with this book when you could be working on your next one in Spanish? I think it's like, you know, it's still like the good thing is that it can make it better, right? I think what drives us crazy Mm. about like finished projects is that somehow they're like set in stone and the things that we think we failed at, we are always like... uh, ever so evident for us, right? Whereas with like translation, at least you have the sense of like, oh God, like that little thing that I really disliked, then like can be, (laughs) you know, can be bettered. And you know, like it's, 
it gives another life to the book. You never know like yeah. where people are going to like read it in a different way where it was read. So there is a certain amount mm -hmm. of hope and surprise and that's exciting. Yeah. That's something I'm curious about. Carlos is evidently extraordinarily fluent in English. Megan, do you have a preference for whether the writer you're translating should know the target language? Does it make your job easier or harder? Ooh. Well, since I work into English, I think most people have some experience of English, but I have translated a few authors who don't speak English. And I ask my questions in Spanish. I try to keep that conversation in Spanish. I try to explain my questions in Spanish. So mm -hmm. Carlos has a real understanding of translation and what it does and what happens in translation. I feel like when I have translated people who don't really speak English, they don't understand a lot of times what I'm asking in the sense that I'll mm -hmm. get a lot of answers. Like when I'm trying to ask these kind of backstory questions, they'll say, oh, just leave it how it is. Don't change anything. And yeah, obviously yeah. I'm changing every word, you know, but people have a hard time understanding why these questions that I'm asking can have an effect on the text. The important thing to me is just to be able to talk to writers. You know, I work almost exclusively on living writers. And to me, hearing their voices, whether it's in English or in Spanish, and to be able to talk to them about what they were thinking as they were writing, just helps open up the translation so much. And like Carlos is saying, it's an ongoing conversation. In a certain, in a certain way, these deadlines and publication dates are imposed and false. And... Yeah. The text is malleable and it's ongoing in a way that if you're working on, you know, a text that was written in 1930, it's more closed, it's more written in stone. Mm -hmm. And I think that's just a process that we both enjoy. I had a question for Megan now I was thinking, does it help you like when you like hear the writers reading out loud in the, let's say in Spanish, like the texts, just because I would imagine that it's the moment in which you say, ah, this is how like at least they're thinking about it in their minds. Yes, that does help. That does help. And and even not even necessarily reading the text, but just hearing the cadence of their voice. This is a little woo woo that I'm getting into now. But <laughs> now when I start translating a writer who I don't know, I always make sure to have a conversation with them over Zoom or to send audio messages because I like I need their voice in my head. It helps me as I'm translating a lot. It, it's amazing. Like things that moments that I was struggling with before, once I have that voice in my head, it just kind of opens it up. And I don't really know why, but I'm I have it very clear. We'll be right back with more of June's conversation with Carlos Fonseca and Megan McDowell. Listeners, we want to hear from you. Every other Thursday on Working Overtime, we answer listener questions, so please tell us your creative challenges and let us help you. Drop us a line at working at slate.com, or you can send a voice memo to that address, or give us a ring at 304-933-WORK. And if you're enjoying this episode, don't forget to subscribe to Working wherever you get your podcasts. I also want to say a quick hello to our listeners on Stitcher. As you may have heard, the Stitcher app is going away on August 29th, but fear not, you'll still be able to find us. 
Listen and subscribe to Working on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, or anywhere else you find podcasts. And thank you so much for being a loyal listener. Okay, back to June's conversation with Megan McDowell and Carlos Fonseca. Well, this is a perfect time for me to ask you to read some of the book. I would love to hear, Carlos, if you would mind reading a selection from Austral, and then Megan, perhaps we could hear your translation of that same excerpt. Sure. We chose just one short paragraph. Basically, like towards the end of the novel, well, the protagonist arrives to this um, memory theater where, like, a survivor mm-hmm. from the genocide, the Guatemalan genocide, is trying to reconstruct the memories uh, according to this tradition of the of the Greeks of constructing, like, literally a, a space where memories conjured. So I'm just gonna like read in Spanish that the moment in which he enters that space. Sobre la base circular de la cúpula que cubría la plataforma central del teatro, encontró tallada una cita. Así es el relato de lo que todavía está en suspenso, de lo que todavía está callado, de lo que está silencioso, de lo que todavía está sosegado, de lo que todavía está en silencio, de lo que está vacío en el cielo. Popol Vuh. La madera había sido esculpida por una mano diestra en el arte del grabado. Julio persiguió una por una las letras de esa escritura circular hasta que llegando al final se topó con el principio y sintió que también la cinta del grabador volvía a rebobinar antes de empezar su loop, inundando la sala nuevamente con los testimonios que había escuchado hacía apenas unos instantes. Voces como ecos que laboriosamente intentaban recomponer mediante el trazado de escenas a primera instancia anodinas la arquitectura del fantasma que parecía esconderse en torno a él. And in English, on the base of the cupola that arched over the theater's central stage, he found an engraved quotation. This is the account of when all is still silent and placid. All is silent and calm, hushed and empty as the womb of the sky. Popolva. The wood had been sculpted by a skilled hand. One by one, Julio followed the letters of that circular writing until, reaching the end, He ran into the beginning and heard the tape recorder also rewind before starting its loop again, flooding the hall with the testimonies he had heard in the background just moments before. Voices, like echoes, tracing scenes that at first seemed anodyne, trying laboriously to recompose the spectral architecture that seemed to be hidden all around him. Thank you for that. You mentioned this earlier, Megan, but... Austral has multiple narrators. It's kind of a spiral, as you said. Obviously, Carlos makes each narrator sound different in a way when he writes those sections. You know, the, each of the narrators has a different voice that's writing, right? Does that affect how you approach the translation? Do you approach each voice differently when it's different? Or is your imperative always the same to represent Carlos's voice? That's a good question. I think some of that emerges in the process. It is something that I'm Mm. conscious of, especially because in this book, at one point he comments, the diary entries have the style of, Mm. and I think it's Celine and Faulkner and it kind of these, this kind of run on torrential Mm. kind of style. So, you know, some of that happens. The sentences are very long. There's a lot of um, clauses. And the diary entries are a little more poetic and they're more stream of consciousness almost. 
So it's something that I'm aware of. And I think those parts were a little more difficult to translate because the syntax is more complex. But it's something that I'm aware of all the time as I'm translating Carlos, because in a way that is his voice, it's to put layer upon layer. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of why I chose, why we chose this section to read, because you have the different layers. You have the citation of history and the popol vuh, and you have the, the testimonies that are going on a loop in the background. And, you know, you have the, the visual representation of this, you know, and the quotation that goes around and then returns to the beginning. Did any of that surprise you, Carlos? No, it was, it was beautiful, for example, to like see like when Megan mentioned, I had forgotten that I mentioned that the style is the style of like Faulkner, right? Uh, <laughs> but it's it's something that I always have like present, when, particularly when I'm working in the different layers, how not to confuse them. And I always remember, mm. for example, now I'm writing, like yesterday I was writing and uh, I noticed when I was re-editing what I had written the day before, I was like, oh, like, this kind of resonates too much with that. And then like a little bit of me or a part of me said like, remember to tell Megan or like, kind of like, or like, <laughs> I, 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 I hope Megan also notices this, right? And I'm probably going to forget that I had to like tell Meg that like, this is something to notice. But it's interesting that like, indirectly her process of translation must mimic those moments of decisions. But of course, within a different context, which is the different language, right? Sometimes it's a Mm -hmm. matter of alliteration that shouldn't be there. But my work in Spanish or not in English, but maybe in English, then it starts to alliterate. So it's, it's interesting that you end up like kind of like putting yourself in trouble and the capacity then of like, you know, the sort of labor of writing or labor of translation, uh, translating is also getting yourself out of those issues. I must reveal my ignorance that I'm not familiar with the writers that you translate, Megan, but I'm very aware that Spanish is a very, you know, when we say Spanish, we're actually talking, in fact, about many different languages effectively. You know, I speak Spanish, but I learned Spanish in Spain. So my my peninsula Spanish is very different from South American Spanish. But also, Carlos, when you were speaking Spanish, I heard a little bit of Spanish here and there. I think you said voces or something. Obviously, you have a very, I almost want to say, multinational upbringing. You know, you, you lived in different countries. So I guess I have two questions. For you, Megan, is there a particular kind of Spanish that you specialize in and where does Carlos fit into it? And then, Carlos, are you aware of kind of having a particular voice that is based on where you grew up in Spanish and do you expect to see it in English? But Megan, you first. Well, I learned Spanish in Chile. So originally, I specialized kind of in Chilean writers. My first writer was Alejandro Sambra, and I've worked with him on, I think, maybe eight books now. And then, you know, geographically, I've kind of spread out from there. Now I have two Argentine writers, uh, Samantha Shrevlin and Mariana Enriquez, who I've worked with on several books of theirs, too. And I would say that, you know, Chilean Spanish is where I feel kind of most at home. I don't know if this is as true now, but it has typically been the Spanish that I've heard in my head. Mm. This year I spent uh, four months in Spain, and I think that has changed a lot. With Carlos, to me, his Spanish is pretty neutral. You know, like it's not necessarily a Caribbean Spanish. 
in this book, he brings in a, a Chilean word, Weon. There's a moment, and he's conscious. And you're very influenced by the Argentinians, clearly, too. I mean, if only Borges and others. Yeah. yeah. And he can play with that a little bit, but you can tell me if you think this is true, Carlos. But compared to some of, like, the, you know, Cuban or, or Caribbean Spanishes that I've, I've worked a little bit with, I feel like your Spanish is a little more neutral. And maybe it's because you spent so much time living in an English-speaking world. Yeah, I think like it has to do with two things. It has to do first with the fact that like, you know, even in my house, my mother would speak like Puerto Rican Spanish, but my father would speak Costa Rican Spanish. So very early on, I was like, you know, kind of deciding between these two things. And we moved from Costa Rica to Puerto Rico very early on. So there was always this sort of like, you know, hybridity in terms of language. And maybe I opted for like at the moment of writing for like, you know, a sort of more sort of neutral Spanish. But I always remember something that another one of the like great writers that Megan translates mentions, sometimes Samantha Schwevelin. Samantha has also lived outside of Argentina for a long time. And one of the things she always like underlines is how like then like abroad in the sort of diaspora, like you start hanging out with all sort of Latin Americans and like Spanish becomes that. Spanish becomes like borrowing a word like huevon from like a Chilean mm -hmm. friend, something from an Argentinian friend. And I feel like I feel comfortable there. I feel like comfortable with yeah, that yeah. sort of like Spanish that it's not like, you know, completely like delocalized, but has the capacity to like kind of camouflage itself in different mm -hmm. places. But having said that there, it also I think has to do with my style. Like, like I don't do, for example, so far, I haven't done so much dialogue. In Australia, at the very end, I do get into these monologues And there I had to like then like kind of localize myself like more closely to mm. within uh, Guatemala. For example, I mentioned I was writing something and in this manuscript, it's much more monologues and it's based in Puerto Rico. So suddenly I was like, ah, I need to like kind of like go back there and kind of like to that place in me that is still located in Puerto Rico and kind of like get that resonance. Well, tell us, Carlos, where did you grow up? What are the traditions that you that you are coming from? Yeah, well, so I come from a family where my father is Costa Rican, as I mentioned, and my mom is Puerto Rican. I was born in Costa Rica and I was there until I was seven. And then I moved to, to Puerto Rico. And in terms of the Spanish, it was very funny because uh, Central American Spanish and particularly Costa Rican Spanish is a little bit different. Uh, it's not so much Caribbean. Mm. People use the voz instead of the tú, right? Voceamos. So very early on, I was always trapped in Puerto Rico. People thought I was Costa Rican. And then in Costa Rica, people thought I was Puerto Rican. So it was a little bit of a mess. And to make things more complex, I moved to the States when I was 18. That kind of solved the issue because then people couldn't even distinguish sometimes between Costa Rica and Puerto Rico. And they would tell me, oh, you're Latin American. And I was like, well, I, I guess like that's, uh, that's a good way of thinking about it. And now I'm in England, married to an Israeli. Right. So it's like all over the place. <laughs> and, and yeah, and my kids speak like a sort of Ladino mixture between Hebrew and Spanish and English. And I like that. I think that's, that's what yeah. it's all about, right? And being able to navigate that and, And I guess what is more important for me is to continue writing in Spanish, although I have been out this year. It's 18 years and I'm 36, so it's 18 and 18. Uh, next year, I'll be more out in English speaking countries than in Latin America, a little bit like Julio. <laughs> right, right. Yes, yes. We, we note some similarities. Carlos, do you think of Austral and Austral being the same book or are they 
different because of the language that they're written in? No, I think of them as the same book. One, like, uh, you know, it depends on like the, the angle from which you look at it. And uh, I think what I was saying before, you know, it's a, it's a different opportunity for books to interact with like different audiences that come from different mm -hmm. traditions, right? So when an author in Latin America picks that book, Austral, they might be thinking, oh, this reminds me of like the works of like, or Piglia or this, but when it lands in the US or the UK, it might interact with authors who have read other stuff, right? So it's almost like a different chemical reaction. And that's always exciting, right? It's a different readership, which is the best you can ask for. Megan, we've mentioned that Austral is the third book of Carlos's that you've translated. Does it get easier or are they all different? Hmm. Did you approach the third book differently than the first? Well, that's a difficult question to answer. I would say that, yes, I approach them differently because I have changed as a translator since, you know, 2012. Mm -hmm. I... I'm a little more sure of myself, which ironically means that I ask a lot more questions. <laughs> because, you know, I used to think, oh, you know, I, I need to know everything. I have to know everything. You know, if I ask questions, it, it's just, you know, admitting my my fallibilities. And now I feel like I I want to know everything and I'm secure in what I don't know, if that makes sense. Yeah. Also, you know, the first time I didn't really know Carlos and now we're friends and we've been working together for a really long time and our friendship goes beyond the books. So that helps. I think that probably, I don't know, I don't like to talk about translation in terms of easy or difficult because a lot of times people offer me a translation or they ask me to do something and they'll say, it's an easy translation. And it never is. And I don't know if that's <laughs> something wrong with me or... But there's always something that you don't see coming. It's not until you get deep into the book that you encounter its, you know, difficulties. I'm not sure that an easy translation really exists, but I think I'm more comfortable translating Carlos now. And I also know his obsessions. <laughs> and, you know, because... All the books are different, but there's usually photography will make an, an appearance or art in general. Um, the archives, mm -hmm. this kind of sense of familiarity probably makes it easier if we want to use that mm -hmm. adjective or, you know, more comfortable, more friendly. <laughs> <laughs> Carlos, you kind of mentioned this before, and I know having spoken with you, I have a sense that your Costa Rican and Puerto Rican pride They've already kind of informed the answer, but you live and teach in Cambridge, England. You, you're you speaking English all the time. You're surrounded, I imagine, by the English language. Do you think you'll ever do a Beckett or a Nabokov and, and write <laughs> in a language other than your native tongue? Well, if you could like uh, guarantee me that I would write like Beckett or Nabokov, <laughs> then I would. <laughs> but sadly, since I don't think I can, I think I'll stick to Spanish. I don't know. For me, it's my way of staying there, right? It's yeah. something yeah. that I that I respect, that I am lucky enough that economically I have this position at the university, so I don't need to earn a living directly from my writing. That might be one of the reasons mm -hmm. that would inform switching into English. So, I don't know, I love like that connection. Sometimes, like for example, since at home I speak mostly in English except with the kids, sometimes mm -hmm. I can spend like 
a whole week without speaking Spanish <laughs> and only like, you know, then the relationship to Spanish goes through reading and writing. So sometimes I feel like if I were to like then suddenly start writing in English, even that connection might be broken. So, uh, mm. so you know, they say never say never, but in my particular <laughs> case, I would be quite surprised if like suddenly I decide to start writing English. I write in English a lot. Like, you know, I write articles in English, but I always had that distinction between like writing articles in English. So my academic life was in that language yeah. and then like literature, literature and fiction or personal essays to be in the language yeah. of my infancy. Carlos Fonseca, Megan McDowell, thank you so much. This was so interesting. I love this conversation. Thank you very much for joining us on Working. Thank you so much for having us. This was really fun. Yeah, thanks so much, Yoon. Lovely to meet you and uh, so good, you know, to have another excuse to always see Megan. Coming up next, June and I will talk about translation as a creative act, the upside of collaborative tension, and the malleability of language. June, I loved this conversation, which is so deeply about language and culture in active dialogue. Just fascinating. <laughs> but before we get into that, I have to ask something a lot more basic. Early in your interview, Carlos confesses that he has a, a natural instinct to complexify, while, <laughs> while Megan is a stickler for clarity. So this is set up like a classic odd couple scenario, <laughs> but I know they aren't actually in conflict. <laughs> What lessons do you think their productive tensions might hold for those of us working in a different field? <laughs> that was really a lovely expression of why, or at least one reason why two people work well together, you know. Liking and respecting each other doesn't guarantee a fruitful relationship. I think those right. things are necessary, but they're not enough. At one point in the interview, Megan mentioned a woo-woo idea, and that gives me permission to suggest that they're might be a bit of a woo-woo response, you know, something that's a, not quite definable in a productive collaborative relationship, which could be editing mm -hmm. or producing or curating or anything. You have to be complementary in those areas that are, for whatever reason, important to the people involved. You know, if sticking to a timetable is incredibly important to you, collaborating with someone who has a very loose relationship with deadlines, it just won't work. And obviously mm -hmm. that's a, a random kind of petty example. But for most of us, there's something that just bugs us and we really can't change. And you just have to be compatible on those non-negotiable things. And so it really impressed me that Carlos understood that, you know, that they do have those those differing perspectives and that's so useful. And, you know, they don't talk about it in terms suggestive of a compromise, right. you know, which, right. which also seems really key. Yes. yes. Well, you know, you are aware that I have some formative experience as a co-author. Mm. So naturally, I perked up when Megan talked about the generous give and take of translation and, you know, how she differentiates between a living text mm. and one that's more fixed. Mm. So I wanted to know, having read Austral, do you feel that intimacy? Do you sense it as a reader? Does it feel more, you know, more alive than, <laughs> for instance, a new English translation of a classic work? Oh, man. Your question has made me realize something. I, I read quite a few translated works. In fact, I once worked at a small press that published books in translation. But mm. I think that almost all of my reading has been of living writers. 
But that said, Megan's translation is absolutely alive. I was carried along by its beating heart as I was reading. You know, mm. she, she did a wonderful job. I'm not sure if what I'm about to say is a compliment, uh, but I was never aware that I was reading a translation. I was just completely yeah. transported into its fictional world. And Austral is a, a, it's just a wonderful book. It, it really spoke to me as someone who has somewhat recently returned to a place and a culture that I left several decades before. You know, not everyone will, will have that exact experience, but when you yeah. can, obviously that's kind of a magical thing. But before we move on, Nate, I'm glad you mentioned your experience as a co-author. You worked with the Jazz and Music Festival impresario George Ween on his memoir, Myself Among Others, A Life in Music. And in my head, at least, that is akin to working as a kind of translator. You were helping George translate his life experiences onto the page. Were there similarities between that experience and the kind of collaboration that Carlos and Megan described? That's such a fascinating framing. And I certainly did not think of it as translation at the time. Uh. You know, that book came out exactly 20 years ago. And, no and I started working on it a, a few years before that. Um, I started in my early 20s. And there were similarities in the sense that the really detail-oriented, but also kind of mystical aspects of collaboration that they describe, that really struck a chord with me. Because as a co-author you are seeking to to be a catalyst yeah. and an amplifier and also sort of invisible. You know, when, when you said you're not sure if it's a compliment, I'm almost certain that Megan would say that it yeah, is. Yeah. You know, she, she doesn't want you to notice her work. And so it was an interesting process of sublimation in a way. And the, <laughs> the only way to get there, I found, was to really, really get to know George as a person, as a writer, as a thinker and conversationalist, yeah. you know, so that I could not only rearrange the transcriptions that we'd made into some kind of literary form, but I could actually sort of ventriloquize yeah. his stories and experiences. Oh. And so there was a sort of transubstantiation yes. going on there, I guess. <laughs> totally. Yeah. And now I, what you've just said has helped me kind of appreciate even more what Megan said about liking to have some kind of conversation, you know? It doesn't even have to be about the book, yeah. but just so you get the author's rhythms and their voice, she gets that in her head. And that now yeah. makes sense with what you said about getting George's words onto the paper. Absolutely. And, and you know, if the writer is alive, as, you know, <laughs> they, they tend to be in Megan's case, why would you not avail yourself of that, of that access and that information? You know, but she also made a good point about how a translator is is really the closest of close readers. The text really is the core thing. And so, you know, it's funny, I, I almost think of it like how your auto mechanic understands your car <laughs> even better than you do, you know? So, June, you and I are both writers. Mm. Do, do you see this as analogous to, you know, one of our core relationships between a, a writer and a really good editor? Or or how is it distinct? And what do you think we might learn from it, even if we're working strictly in one tongue <laughs> oh. as a writer? I mean, absolutely. I think it's very similar. As a writer, I can think of nothing better than working with an editor who is demanding and who pushes you a little bit, you know, just to take an idea mm -hmm. one or two steps further or provide more evidence for an assertion or someone who tells you when your jokes just don't work, whether you want to hear that or not, you know? Right. You don't right. always want to do that work. 
And especially because they often come into the process when you're like just a bit worn out, especially if it's a big project. But mm -hmm. if you have an editor who you trust, that to me is like the best part of writing. And I have never understood those writers who make a big thing about, oh, they don't they don't want to be edited. Uh, you know, they think right. they don't need professional editors. To me, that's just foolish. And <laughs> there's an important commonality, which is that while the job of a translator or an editor is to make the work as good as it can be, it's ultimately not their work. You know, translators and editors are typically great writers. But when they're translating mm. or editing, they're working in service of the author and their writing. So you do have to kind of stand back a little bit. And, you know, that's not for everyone. As to the lesson of that experience, this is really hard for me to say because I'm pretty much a hermit, but I would say that you should always look for <laughs> feedback from someone. You know, that might yeah. be a skilled professional editor. That to me is the apex experience. But if you don't have access to that kind of person, to that kind of role, you might look to get feedback from a writer's group or another writer who you trust or a friend who has good taste and, and knows you and knows what you're trying to do. Or if you have the means, hire someone to give you editorial feedback. But I think mm -hmm. it's really important to get a perspective that isn't only inside your own head. And I don't always want that, but it's really good. No, it's it's very true. And I I also work as an editor and uh, that's been really valuable to have yes. that perspective on the other side of the glass, so to speak, and realize like, oh, there's really no reason to be defensive yes. going into the the uh, the feedback process. Yeah, that really is lesson one. I'm also really glad that you brought up the, you know, the cosmopolitan dimension of the Spanish language. Yes. You know, we're, we're really not talking about a monolith. And Carlos has such a unique personal experience with that. And it's striking how he seems to draw a distinction between his work as a novelist and some of his other writing, you know, much of which he does in English, you know, and he teaches, does he teach at Cambridge? Yes, yes. So what does it mean to bring someone like Megan in as a partner in that process? You know, yeah. it, like strictly speaking, he doesn't quote unquote need yeah. her. Yeah. To get the work done. Yeah. So what is the motivation? I get the sense neither of them would describe her as an interloper here. Yeah, I feel pretty sure that that's true. And yeah, that was a fascinating insight to me. You know, language is a very tangible expression of our roots. You know, I'm guessing that the different flavor of Spanish wasn't the only difference between the years that Carlos spent in Costa Rica and those in Puerto Rico or the different ancestral roots he had in those places. The Spanish language wasn't the only thing he left behind when he moved to the States at 18. But language is a nice proxy for all those other things. You can explore a lot of ideas by thinking about the language you used in those places. It's almost mm. grounding. And I was really interested in the notion of holding on to his origins by writing fiction in the language he grew up in, you know, using at home, whereas doing academic work in English isn't freighted in anything like the same way. So... Yeah. Then getting to bring in Megan, who in a way is a bridge between those two worlds, you know, the part of him where his fiction lives and the language he uses most of the time. Honestly, that almost seems like a therapeutic role, but mm. that too is just part of it because Megan's skills then allow more people to experience Spanish language, Carlos. I don't know. It's very complicated. It's fascinating. And clearly it works really well. <laughs> Yeah. Well, 
hearing their banter and you know as you're as you're speaking with them yes. it just feels like the two of them know how to hang yeah yeah <laughs> you know? yeah like yeah. there's a lot of you know a really incredible amount of work that clearly went into this project but you feel like every time the two of them you know logged onto a zoom session together or what have you they they really looked forward to it and enjoyed the whole process yeah that's the impression i have too well, speaking of which, June, <laughs> I have thoroughly enjoyed our hang here today, but that is about all the time we have for today's show. Before we go, though, just one more reminder that if you join Slate Plus, you will get to hear all of our episodes ad-free. You'll also get to hear exclusive segments on our show and a lot of other Slate podcasts, and you'll get to hear entire bonus episodes of shows like Slow Burn and Big Mood, Little Mood. Of course, you will also get full access to all of the articles on Slate.com. Sign up today at slate.com slash working plus. Thank you to Carlos Fonseca and Megan McDowell for being our guests this week. And thanks to our producer for this episode, Kevin Bendis, and to our series producer, Cameron Drews, for making sure that nothing gets lost in translation. We'll be back next week for Nate's conversation with trombonist and composer Kalia Van Dever. Until then, get back to work. Get back to work.